Hello, and you're tuning into Apa Kata Youth, a Hakam Youth podcast. Apa kabar, Belia? This podcast is brought to you by Hakam Youth, a space for conversations to help us youth navigate through the complexities of current issues in our Tana Tumpanya Daraku, Malaysia. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Apa Kata Youth. My name is Elina, and I'll be hosting episode two with my partner in crime, Ashrena, who's making her podcast hosting debut. So, Ashrena, what is the fuss with police accountability in Malaysia? Thank you for the lovely intro, Alina. <laughs> so, right. Hello, dear listener. As Alina mentioned, we're going to be discussing police accountability over the course of this episode. As a quick overview to what Alina and I will be talking about, we'll first give you a snapshot of the current situation with keeping the police in check, followed by a discussion regarding the IPCMC and the IPCC, both of which are bills designed to help deal with police misconduct. Please note that this episode contains depictions of police misconduct and brutality that some people may find disturbing. So let's get right to it then. Under part A, Alina and I will be glossing over the general landscape of the position relating to police accountability. Mm -hmm. And let's do a bit of an intro for the force. Right on. So as a cursory point, our lovely Police Diraja Malaysia, or PDRM as they are commonly known, is a federal agency that carries a huge responsibility to the nation in keeping the peace. And we depend on effective and conscientious work on their part in doing so. Now, in serving society this way, they wield a significant degree of power in the civic square, i.e. bearing and deploying firearms, as well as powers of arrest and incarceration. It is thus equally, if not more crucial, for there to be an adequate checks and balances mechanism in place. And this is to ensure that all of this power isn't misplaced and is above all else exercised proportionately. Exactly. And what sort of groundwork have we had in Malaysia to keep the force in check right now? Great question. And this is where we introduce the EAIC, or Enforcement Agency Integrity Commission. Now, this is a federal statutory body established by an act of parliament in the year 2009. And it is essentially the current regulator keeping all federal agencies in check. And that includes the police force. Now, generally speaking, the EAIC has the power to conduct investigations, track complaints, and recommend a range of actions that can be taken by the Police Force Commission should the need arise. Right, that's cool and all. And has this actually accomplished anything meaningful in the realm of police misconduct? Okay, the answer to that is a resounding no. (laughs) It has woefully failed to ensure police accountability because honestly, all it does is allow the board to make recommendations. It's simply not empowered to prosecute or impose disciplinary action for the sort of misconduct that we see. And this led to the IPCMC bill being tabled in the year 2019, um, followed by the IPCC in August just this year. Lots of confusing acronyms, I know, but fear not, Alina and I will be discussing the finer details of the legal aspect of the issue i.e. the IPCMC versus IPCC smackdown in the next part of this podcast. So do bear with us. Yes, do bear with us. And just to give you some context here, please note that this bit contains depictions of violence that some people may find disturbing. So, Ashrena, you mentioned the 
these laws from the EAIC, right? But you see, for ages, there's still been countless of instances where police actions have been questionable, if I can put it that way. The most apparent ones would be situations of deaths in police custody. We sometimes hear about abuse of detainees and the misuse of administrative detention laws, but most incidents have slipped under the radar, unfortunately. Mm, yep. For example, the death of Kugan Anantan last year from kidney failure while in police custody. And just in July this year, news of 35-year-old Mugilarasu's death, which the prison department claimed was caused by a heart attack, but according to the victim's family, when they saw his body at the mortuary, it had bruises on the face, blood stains in the mouth, and swellings on his arms. And there's more where that came from, you know, when Suara Rakyat Malaysia, aka Swaram, released a video last month on Facebook interviewing the parents of a detainee who apparently hung himself after just a day in lockup. Mm. But there was no bruising on the neck. And when the mother checked, there was bruising on the head and the mouth instead. I mean, this is all very disturbing to hear, but the issue isn't just confined to custodial death, is it? Well, no, they're not just confined to custodial deaths, but these instances are the most apparent ones because they range from all sorts of misconduct, but the bottom line is they always involve some sort of violence. Mm -hmm. There was a 2010 case of um, Amino Rashid Amza, who was only 14 years old, and he died after being shot by the police during a car chase. These are not just things you see on the TV. He was 14 years old and he was literally shot to death. Mm. And I'm sure you've heard of this one, the enforced disappearances of Ami Chetma and Raymond Kaur on religious issues. Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, and this came into the limelight when our Malaysian Human Rights Commission, Suhakam, concluded that their disappearances were actually carried out by the state security apparatus. And so far, asking for specific evidence from this police has been more challenging than putting Najib in jail. Oh, burn. Yeah, and it goes on. Earlier this month itself, two PDRM officers allegedly forced a couple to have sexual intercourse in a car while they filmed. They punched one of the victims and looked and took 1,250 ringgit from them so that the case will not be referred to the religious department. That's like a minor three in one. That's battery, <laughs> sexual assault and bribery. Alina, you can't drag Milo into this. But it's true, and from our police. In fact, the stats speak for themselves. In 2016, Human Rights Report Overview Swaram reported that 721 prisoners died in police custody from 2013 to April 2016. Mm -hmm. A survey by Suhakam showed that 10% of 369 detainees alluded to have witnessed, heard, or suffered some sort of physical violence. So it's clear, there's just too many incidences that's outright questionable, and perhaps once it's an accident, twice it's a coincidence, but more than that, it's definitely a pattern. Yeah, completely. Yeah, and some of these cases, if the victims have the means to, sir, they, they can go to the they can go get criminal prosecution or a protracted civil suit for the victims to seek some form of justice. But there's still no confirmation that they'll get the justice they need. But what else can they do? Mm -hmm. To go through all that and this, it's a tedious process in itself. Now, you know, I think the word tedious barely covers it. Mm. It becomes especially frustrating when people on the outside who don't know what's going on 
reduce these issues to the whole bad apple argument. Yeah. You know, like typical Kopitiam banter. Oh, not everyone on the police force behaves like this. And these are just a few rogue cops. Hashtag not all cops. <laughs> just classic one bad apple spoils the barrel excuses. Exactly. And you heard the same sort of rhetoric with the whole hashtag men are trash movement a while ago. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. Because we obviously aren't referring to every single individual in the bracket. But there has been enough misconduct and there have been enough incidents to spark an insane amount of distrust and fear. And in this case, we just we cannot be ignorant to the notion that certain situations are capable of enabling, if not creating, irresponsible officers. And this is very sort of Stanford prison experiment territory. So it may very well be the bad barrel that has spoiled the apples to begin with. Mm. But anyway, if we're running with this sort of analogy, the bad barrel in question is undoubtedly the absence of an independent body in Malaysia to keep the PDRM in check. Yeah. Now, if you go on the net or do any sort of research into this topic, almost every article addressing police accountability in Malaysia harps on about the whole independence deficiency and this lends itself to a glaring lack of transparency regarding data on police misconduct so it plays into a very dangerous out of sight out of mind scenario Mm. let's get specific for a second here nothing illustrates this better than the explanations or preliminary reports prepared by the police themselves in cases of custodial death The police themselves? So this seems like the police aren't even hiding it at this point. Exactly. So, for instance, Malaysia Kini and the Human Rights Commission of Malaysia both found via further independent investigation that only one in four custodial deaths will be publicized. And this points to a severe practice of sweeping things under the rug just to save face. And here's the scary thing. There seems to be a recurring pattern, as you identified earlier, Alina, Mm. of covering up police misconduct by saying one thing on paper in spite of all of the evidence pointing in another direction in practice. Now, these aren't just baseless claims. These aren't things we're plucking out of thin air. A press statement made by Swaram on the 19th of July last year in 2019 cited an inquest carried out in 2018, which found that the most common CODs, cause of deaths, cited in most custodial death cases are, quote, natural causes or suicide. Now, just bear this in mind. I'll come back to this in just a moment. But that same inquest found that from 2011 to 2018, there were a total of 104 deaths in custody. This is very interesting because you had 56 medical cases, 8 suicides, 2 accidents, 4 by blunt force, and 34 were unknown, whatever that means. Isn't that just too convenient that you have unknown as a reason? Yes, and Alina, you mentioned the circumstances surrounding the Mugila Rasu's death just a moment ago. Mm. and how the police ruled out foul play by effectively citing cardiac arrest as the official cause of death despite bodily wounds indicating otherwise, right? Yes, and I'm sure that wasn't the last of it, was it? No, it certainly wasn't. So brace yourself, 
because there's a very real element of deja vu with some of the other stories that I found while I was looking into this topic. For our listeners, please note that this bit contains depictions of violence that some people may find disturbing. So first we have M. Mangiswaran. He was said to have committed suicide in his cell in April 2017. His siblings later claimed that there were bruises and injury marks on their brother's body and that he was being mentally tortured and threatened in custody. Then we have P. Karunaniti, who was found dead in lockup on the 1st of June 2013. Preliminary investigations purportedly showed no, sound, no signs of foul play. And the police classified his passing as a, get this, sudden death. Here we go again, lah. Yes, unfortunately. And here's where things get really, really disturbing. In 2015, on the very same case, the coroner's court ruled that the man in question had sustained 49 external injuries, 49 due to blunt force trauma. And on top of all of this, an inquest into his death also concluded that his passing was actually accelerated by an omission on the part of the police to prevent abuse at the hands of other detainees and a failure to provide medical care. Now, if this doesn't sound bad enough, his brother apparently saw actual, tangible CCTV evidence of how he was, quote, beaten up and kicked, end quote, by several policemen. Mm-hmm. And this happened a while back in 2013. All of these grievances have been aired, and yet his family is still waiting for justice to be administered. Now, all three examples are fairly spread out. But the common denominator here is a really chilling account comprising three core ingredients. Okay, first you have a failure to prevent abuse, sometimes at the hands of the other detainees. Second, you have violence or abuse in some form at the hands of the police. And C, dodging bullets by claiming that all of these people, all of them, conveniently drop dead of their own account. Just like that. On slow clap for our creative writings, <laughs> honestly. So all of this goes on without an independent, adequate system to keep a check on the atrocities that have been going on. And the fact that so much has happened and so little is being said or done to remedy the situation is just Malaysian apathy and corruption at its mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'd be surprised, you know, there's still people saying, oh, this is not just in Malaysia, you know, look at places like India and other countries. Mm. Yes, no doubt, it is a global issue. Look at the US, we have the whole Black Lives Matter movement that came to be due to police brutality as well. Issues of the killing such as George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Yeah. And yes, countries like India is notorious for absorbing case after case of police misconduct to the point even the people there looks at it simply as just a part of their daily lives. Yeah, I don't think this problem is confined to countries like India. I mean, those of us in Malaysia have become very desensitized to casual violence, haven't we? Exactly. And are we just supposed to accept and continue to normalize this? It's definitely not easy to question such a deeply rooted system which is beyond flawed, but it's time that we face this head on. Oh yeah, 100%. We've definitely got to sort of collectively review the way that we look at these things. Yeah. 
Yeah, and if anything, the entire world in 2020 hopefully realized this. Just last month in Paris, protests sparked against the arrest of an unarmed black man. And the government's response to that incident was having a security law that restricts more people sharing pictures and videos of the police to go on near protect their private life. Mm. These cases, yes, they rocked the individual countries to its core, but the spiral is global. Most people can relate to these cases and the Malaysians are just no exception. The good thing is now people are no longer staying silent for reform, so why should we? Yeah, I think you're right to identify the global spillover. Mm. And it's particularly thought-provoking how both of the examples you cited from the States and from France involve people of colour, specifically those from the Black community. Mm. And I'd say this really sparked um, a long overdue discussion on social media about disproportionate police brutality against Malaysian Indians, particularly those of South Indian ethnic stock. Yes. And on that note, I feel we'd be doing the victims an absolute injustice by not addressing the elephant in the room head-on over this episode. And I'd just like to remind our listeners that this is a complex structural issue and a very unfortunate byproduct of an extremely broken system. Yeah, and we fully appreciate that people of other ethnicities have also fallen prey to police violence as far as the raw numbers go. But we need to look at the bigger picture that percentages has to offer. Right, so we've already highlighted a number of cases regarding racialized violence against Malaysian Indians in custody, but the stats genuinely speak volumes about the sheer intensity of the unspoken racial profiling that goes on behind closed doors. Mm. But let me paint you a portrait just a second. So the latest census surveys indicate that Malaysia currently consists of approximately 29.4 million citizens. So about 6.9% of this population are of Indian ethnicity or heritage. Now think about this figure. Of all the deaths in custody, and again, we acknowledge that the figures vary, some studies have suggested that deaths among the ethnic Indian detainees consisted of 23% of the total. A study conducted by Swaram just three years ago cited a figure of closer to 55%. Now, both of these numbers carry a lot of weight, both 23, 55, but this is quite a significant statistical chasm between these two figures. So we see yet again the same inconsistency and opacity where data is concerned. You know, where one source says A and another says B. Mm. So it's extremely unreliable. And this reveals a truly detrimental flaw in the systems we have in place right now. And on that note, something we thus need to consider is the utility of the law in managing this horrific problem. This brings us to the next part of the podcast. Alina and I will now be getting technical. We'll be looking into the IPCMC and the IPCC in a little more detail in this segment. Yes, and earlier we heard all these acronyms being thrown around and about this IPCC, IPCMC, but let's put it as simply as we can. Yes. So the IPCMC is the Independent Police Complaints and Misconduct Commission. I know, a mouthful, but it's what it is. And the IPCC is 
the Independent Police Conduct Commission. So the bill for the IPCMC was tabled in 2019 by the Pakatan Harapan government and it set up the IPCMC to state its functions, powers, and essentially what kind of complaints the police would be handling and how these complaints would be investigated. It also set out the disciplinary proceedings to deal with these misconducts and the punishments that can be meted on police personnel. Whereas the bill for the IPCC was tabled just this year in August, mm. which was essentially to replace the recently withdrawn IPCMC introduced by the previous government. Was that a mouthful? Was that okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's fine that you've made all of these points, but what is... What's the whole objective of having this additional legal framework in place? We already have the EAIC, so I think there's a bit of confusion as to why we need this extra mechanism. What do you think? Mm, yeah, so basically the objective for both commissions generally is to provide an independent oversight body for the police. So firstly, they want to promote integrity within the police force as well as to advise the government and recommend measures for such promotion of integrity. And then you want to protect the public interest by dealing with police misconduct to formulate and put in place mechanisms for the detection, investigation and prevention of police misconduct. And thirdly, to exercise disciplinary control over mm. police as a whole. However, despite the IPCC aiming for the same, it seemed that it's probably the most significantly watered-down version of the IPCMC, as we will dissect in just a moment, yeah. Okay, so the notion of an external oversight or review body, that seems to lie at the crux of the issues between these two bills, right? Mm-hmm. I think then it becomes a hundred times more interesting when you sort of dig a little deeper and consider the ethos or rationale behind these bills. So I did a bit of digging and um, YB Tuan Lim Kit Siang actually wrote a blog post a while back summarizing the whole IPCMC discussion. And he noted how the whole raison d'etre for the IPCMC proposal was spelled out by the PDRM in Chapter 6 of their own report on modernizing the role, functions and organizations of the Royal Malaysia Police. And it essentially cites a need for the establishment of an external oversight body, as you just summarized, Alina. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting, they noted how this will be a, quote, quantum step forward in enhancing accountability and to help restore and sustain the confidence of the people and the private sector in PDRM. Mm, but, like, how do you think um, things look where the IPCC is concerned as of now? This is where the fuzziness kicks in. <laughs> so, the primary reason for having the IPCC seems to lie with the whole oh, the IPCMC isn't up to scratch when it comes to the independence of the commission. End of. That's all you ever hear when it comes to why the IPCC was introduced. Mm. And this is where it gets interesting because the chairman of the Bar Council's task force on the IPCMC bill has come out and said that key stakeholders were not consulted about a new bill. Our good friend, the IPCC, they weren't consulted about the table, sorry, about the bill that was tabled in August. So yeah, basically just doing things very much on the slide. So this sort of secrecy begs a number of questions. First, the sheer lack of transparency with regards to the IPCC and that lack of consultation. Why was that the case? Yeah. Why, why was it that the IPCMC was withdrawn so swiftly? You know, instead of just being tweaked and amended to address the things that detractors of the bill were saying. 
And I think the most pressing of them all is, you know, whose interests are you really trying to protect? Like, uh, why are you so secretive? You know, it doesn't serve anyone well when you do things this way. Yeah. And another incident comes to mind when you think about attempts at transparency with the police. Um, the arrest of student activist Wong Yanke for merely recording a police raid in the UNE sedition case. And again, all this person did was record something. There was no input, no augmentation on his part. My question is this, why was that such a threat to the police? What are you afraid of people seeing? Yeah, and you have nothing to hide if you have not engaged in any acts of misconduct, you know. Yep, berani kerana benar, takut kerana salah. Oof, I, just, <laughs> I just gave myself a massive SPM flashback. <laughs> with that. Um, flashback aside, on that note, I think it's worth devoting some time thinking about how these two bills work and the key facets under each legal framework. The perks the IPCMC has to offer would first be to protect our human rights in the cause of combating crime and maintaining law and order since the bill specifically deals with misconduct such as police brutality, custodial deaths, shootings and cover-ups perpetrated by the police. Mm. And another pro here would be the IPCMC will actively audit and monitor police facilities, um, the police facilities, operations and procedures to enhance impartiality and accountability of the police force. And this itself will ensure that there's free and fair hearings and any officer accused of misconduct would have ample opportunity to defend himself as well. And the IPCMC is not here to punish the police per se, but clearly to neutralize the police from throwing lines in its services, which then produces a non-biased police force and enhancing institutional accountability in our country. However, mm-hmm. we should note that what the IPCMC cannot touch is issues under sections 96 and 97 of the Police Act of 1967, which is largely on administrative matters in the police force. For some context here, section 96 deals with regulations concerning promotion and reduction in ranks, promotion and proficiency examinations, the definition of disciplinary offences itself, uniforms and arms, leave of absence and fees for extra police services. I know it's a mouthful, but bear with me. Um, On another note, Section 97 concerns administrative orders for the general control, direction and information of the police force. But overall, the formation of the IPCMC does not mean that the EAIC um, that you mentioned earlier, which Mm -hmm. is more of a complaint system, it doesn't mean that it will become redundant. But the IPCMC here will just generally help keep our police in check and restore public confidence as a whole. Yeah, the EAIC would, I suppose, then work in tandem with whatever scheme is put into place. Mm. Which now brings us to the IPCC, dubbed the Toothless Harimau Malaya. <laughs> and this is the new bill that was introduced by our new government um, just this August. Um, and it is flawed to say the least. And some say a waste of public funds. And I'd like to highlight three core issues with this mess of a bill relating to disciplinary authority, independence, and crucially, exemptions for the Inspector General's standing orders. Um, And I'll be taking each in turn. So first, we have the IPCC axing the disciplinary authority of the Commission. Now, the section on disciplinary authority found in the IPCMC is not present anywhere in the IPCC Act. Now, what this section would have done was empower the IPCC to set up a disciplinary board to hear complaints. Mm. Now, what does the removal of this section mean? 
it basically reduces the powers in action that the IPCC can exercise over findings of misconduct and abuse in the police. Now, people may counter this point and say, oh, no, the IPCC introduced a complaints committee under Section 23 to investigate any alleged police misconduct. But this has the downside of taking away any fear of sanction or even the prospect of these policemen being reprimanded for wrongdoings on their part. So that wraps up the first issue. Right, so the second issue that I want to get into is that the IPCC is independent only on paper and not in practice. Now, this is the issue that irritates me the most, but I'll get into the law first, specifically in relation to Section 6, Subsection 3 of the bill that stipulates who makes up the committee. Now, the wording of the provision states that, quote, Members of the commission shall have knowledge, skill, and experience or shown capacity and professionalism, end quote, for whatever case of misconduct they happen to be handling. Now, my problem is this. Who fits the bill? Clearly, members of the force themselves. Yeah, and I think this is absolutely crucial because what this effectively means is that the IPCC Act has created a space to allow members and retirees of the police and public service, including the Ministry of Home Affairs, to be members of the IPCC. How does having members of the police force on the commission scream independence in any way? <laughs> so, I mean, you have Officer Mickey Mouse doing something wrong? And then you get his friends Goofy and the gang reviewing his conduct. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what kind of twisted kita jaga kita scheme have, have we got going on here? No, it's just, this is why it irritates me. It's because it's so ridiculously circular. Look, yeah. PDRM at the end of the day is a corporate unit, right? Mm. And its members are going to be collectively interested to keep up its image as an effective police force because that is what will serve their best interests. Yeah. Now, the third more insidious issue deals with the statutory exemption for the Inspector General's Standing Orders, or IGSO, in the IPCC Bill. Now, the IPCC Bill exempts conduct falling within the bracket of Sections 96 and 97 of the Police Act 1967 from the jurisdiction of the Commission. So they're exempted from that. And this means that it excludes the IGSO from review and investigation. So that's sort of a blind spot that the IPCC has created with the framework that is currently in place. And so you're probably wondering what these standing orders are. Now, these standing orders basically deal with how matters like arrests are made, the treatment of detainees, as well as how and when a policeman can use his weapon. This puts deaths in custody and police brutality squarely outside the purview of the IPCC yeah. if it falls within the ambit of the IG standing order, right? So anyone who complains to the IPCC about being mistreated or even tortured while detained by the police would be met with an absolute non-starter response that the IPCC does not entertain such complaints because, again, it falls within that blind spot. Yeah. Additionally, these standing orders fall within the ambit of the Official Secrets Act. They are not made public. No one has any knowledge of the contents of such orders unless required through a court order or whatever else. And this means that if an IPCC, if the IPCC responds to a complaint by saying that it lies within the scope of the IGSO, its decision not to investigate that complaint 
would be extremely difficult to review and challenge. So that again plays into the whole issue of a lack of transparency and opacity with the laws that are in place. And just to add salt to the wound and illustrate just how ridiculous and draconian this law is, countries in countries like the UK, Australia, certain provinces in Canada, the chief of police or police commissioner standing orders are publicly available online. Yeah, because in more developed places, transparency is more than just a myth, you know? Yeah, exactly. Transparency is the way of the world and how yeah, and anyone, any responsible body should conduct itself. Yeah, and everybody is watching. So that's, that's a good thing, you know, and we should probably follow in the footsteps of these countries. Definitely, I mean, complete agreement. This brings us to the next segment of the podcast, our rapid fire evaluation. So Alina, between the IPCMC and the IPCC, <laughs> which is more feasible and why? Well, clearly I'll be biased here, um, but it'll be the IPCMC because it's clear that the IPCC is just a watered down version of the IPCMC and even worse in comparison to the original EIC that you mentioned. So of course, on the surface, the IPCMC is the most viable option here, but by passing the IPCC, we are effectively just accepting that we need not be concerned to control PDRM's exercise of their coercive powers. Mm. And the fact is, in the face of police misconduct, citizens simply don't have a clear channel to complain. So the IPCMC would be the best option here. Yeah, I think I will have to agree with you on that. And um, just building on the points that you just made, I think we all need to make the concession that if the primary concern relates to having an independent review mechanism, the IPCMC wins hands down. Yeah. Um, but I just playing devil's advocate a little bit. Mm. The, the IPCC isn't all that hopeless. It retains most provisions in the IPCMC, with the exception of the powers of a disciplinary board, obviously, as we've just discussed. Um, it also at least preserves the provision on referring incidents involving sexual crimes, grievous harm, death under police detention, or custody to the commission. Mm, yeah, and, and that's really good. Plus, having an additional section 39 of the IPCC specifically, it allows for reporting requirements, making it compulsory for the commission to table its annual report in parliament, which if implemented and executed well, could mean that lawmakers will be made aware of the statistics and how of how the police force would run day-to-day -day operations. Yeah, this takes care of the transparency and data deficiency problem we identified much earlier in the podcast. Yeah, so in light of all this, Ash, what do you reckon should be changed about the bill to ensure that our police are actually made accountable? Long story short, we really, really need to recalibrate certain things that are in the bill because what we require right now is an independent body, yeah. one that is trusted and manifestly effective to keep the police in check. Mm -hmm. And I think this means bumping up disciplinary powers by a mile, ensuring that investigators have no personal or corporate stake in the investigative findings. 
And finally, I think scrapping the exemption for the Inspector General standing orders is of the essence. We cannot be messing yeah. with a blind spot of that scale. Yeah, definitely. And the last time I checked, I think the second and third readings of the IPCC bill, um, these were supposed to happen in November, I believe. They were postponed by the government. So nothing has been passed just yet. So there's always time and space to right the wrong that has been done through the withdrawal of the IPCMC and all the good it could have done had it been passed. And we've now hit our favourite part of the podcast series, Hakam Youth's Call to Action. So, fellow Malaysians, this is our call to action for this episode and Hakam Youth encourages you to open your eyes to the issues affecting Malaysia through SEEC. Number one, to support. Number two, to educate. And number three, to engage. Thank you, Alina. So first and foremost, support. Do be an ally to communities that are affected and listen to their grievances. Validation means a great deal, especially when those affected belong to minorities in society and often go unheard. And yes, number two, educate. In doing so, you have to keep yourself and those around you aware of these issues. Don't turn a blind eye and take the initiative to be aware. Keep up with the current affairs and do what you can to get others tuned into the conversation. And last but not least, engage. Our MPs are here for a reason. They are democratically elected conduits for communication between the people and our lawmakers. Get in touch with them. Hakam Youth is here to assist you with that. We've prepared a basic email template addressing the issue of police misconduct. DM us on any of our social media platforms for more information. We're at Hakam Youth on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And that's all the time we have for today's episode of Apakati Youth. Be sure to tweet us your thoughts on this episode at Hakam Youth and what you'd like to hear next in future episodes as we dive into other interesting topics and interview prominent figures should we have the chance. So see you then. Stay safe.